Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of November 27th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And, uh, well, we certainly had a um, tellingly ironic juxtaposition of simultaneous news stories this week. The COP27 Global Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and the World Cup Games in Qatar. Did you happen to catch this from uh, Scientific American? i read from the text. Outdoor air conditioning cools the World Cup, but is it sustainable? In an ever-warming world, the health benefits of stadium air conditioning may not outweigh the climate risks. In 2009, when Qatar placed its bid to host the Men's World Cup, many wondered how a country so hot, summer temperatures can exceed 110 degrees Fahrenheit, could host a soccer tournament. To quell those concerns, Qatar built air-conditioned outdoor stadiums. This move could inspire other sporting venues to use such technology to protect the health of athletes and fans. But this is a flawed solution that is not environmentally sustainable, experts say, despite efforts to power AC systems with green energy sources. The idea of putting energy-guzzling air conditioning into open-air roofless stadiums has added to Qatar's Long list of controversies, ranging from alleged bribery to reported human rights abuses. The host country promises that the AC systems, now in use in seven of its eight World Cup stadiums, have been built with sustainability in mind. According to the International Federation of Association Football, FIFA, Global Soccer's governing body, the outdoor ACs will draw energy from solar panels and shoot cool air only to the parts of the stadium that need it the most, namely the seats and the field. But experts doubt that AC systems in outdoor stadiums could ever be truly sustainable. Shelley Miller, a sustainability expert at the University of Michigan, who has studied refrigeration and air conditioning systems, says that air conditioning is a major source of global greenhouse gas emissions. This is linked to both its strain on the electricity grid and faulty AC units that leak refrigerant chemicals, which are potent greenhouse gases. The emission problem is likely to get worse over time because the global use of indoor air conditioning is expanding rapidly, with outdoor AC tech readily available. It may sound like an easy fix for heat-related illnesses at athletic competitions, an issue that plagued the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and will affect more events as the climate crisis continues. But from an energy perspective, that's a pretty bad idea, Miller says, because much of the cold air escapes into the open environment. There's a reason that we close our windows when we run our air conditioners, end quote. Unbelievable! And note the flawed assumption 
right in the very headline. Is it sustainable? It may not outweigh the climate risks. What is the climate risk to be weighed against here? Who says that we have to go on having World Cups and Olympics and other such global spectacles every year with huge carbon footprints just from the air travel, even when not in places where the games themselves are inherently carbon-intensive, such as Qatar? As long as it is verboten to even question whether we really need to keep doing the World Cup and the Olympics, I say we are not serious about addressing the impending climate apocalypse. Not to mention that probably scores of hyper-exploited migrant workers died of heat exhaustion in the building of these stadiums, although there has been some controversy around the numbers. And what actually went down at COP27, meanwhile? Was anything accomplished? Here's the little digest that I wrote up about it, which appeared on the Counter Vortex website November 23rd. COP27, progress on loss and damage, not mitigation. The 27th UN Climate Change Conference, COP27, closed November 20th with what was hailed as a breakthrough agreement to establish a loss and damage fund for vulnerable countries on the front lines of climate disasters, yet no action was taken to stop oil and gas expansion from fueling further such disasters. India had pushed for a proposal to extend to all fossil fuels the agreement to phase down coal reached last year at COP26 in Glasgow. A broad coalition of more than 80 countries took up the call, but host country Egypt, holding the presidency of the conference, was able to block the measure, acceding to powerful opponents, prominently including Saudi Arabia and Russia. It should be noted that while Saudi Arabia and Russia are key oil and gas producers, India is a major coal producer and fought for weaker language on the coal phase down at Glasgow. So the battle lines seem to reflect competition between different sectors of the hydrocarbons industry. Indeed, just a week before COP27 opened in the resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt hosted a meeting in Cairo of the Gas Exporting Countries Forum, GECF. There, Egyptian Petroleum Minister Tarek el-Mola crowed, quote, The cleanest hydrocarbon fuel, natural gas, is seen as the perfect solution that strikes the right balance and will continue to play a key role in the future energy mix, end quote. I'll just briefly interject that once again, such statements are inherently obfuscatory. Strike the right balance against what? To continue, corporate power also seems to have played an outsized role in shaping the debate. The number of delegates with links to the fossil fuel industry at COP27 jumped 25% from the Glasgow meeting, according to a tally by campaign group Global Witness. The organization found that more than 600 among the some 35,000 attending the talks were linked to the hydrocarbons industry, more than the combined delegations 
from the 10 most climate-impacted countries. This was met with outrage by some activists in attendance. Quote, if you want to address malaria, you don't invite the mosquitoes, quipped Philip Jackpore of Nigeria, who works with the group Corporate Accountability and Public Participation Africa, COPPA. As long as we have the fossil fuel lobby and machinery in full swing, we will not make progress, he told BBC News. Groups such as Global Witness also insisted that the Loss and Damage Fund falls short of demands for climate reparations, as it excludes liability or compensation for past harm. The sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, released earlier this year, did for the first time name colonialism as an historical and ongoing driver of the climate crisis. Okay, some comments. First, note that Russia and Saudi Arabia came together as a bloc to bar any real progress. Both countries waging horrific wars at the moment, Russia in Ukraine and Saudi Arabia in Yemen. And what's really funny about this is the propaganda service, these two military adventures, serve each other by providing the what about excuse to both their respective apologists. You hear over and over from Russia's useful idiot apologist in response to the horror in Ukraine, what about Yemen? And my response is, okay, what about it? Are you really arguing that if Saudi Arabia with U.S. military aid bombs civilians, then it's okay for Russia to do it? Really? And the commonality of interest that these two petro powers displayed at COP27 just illustrates again what I've been saying for years, that a global divide-and-conquer scam is the essence of the international state system. It's all a game. And if you get taken in by the propaganda, then you're being a useful idiot. Sorry, not my fault. The Ukrainian delegation at COP27, by the way, was quick to point out that Russia's war is taking an enormous toll in terms of environmental destruction with oil refineries being bombed, spewing massive amounts of carbon into the atmosphere in completely uncontrolled manner. I'll also point out the rather ironic position of China at COP27. Certainly, for the past four years and change that Xi Jinping has been in power, China's whole public posture has been, we're a major world power now, and we demand to be respected as such. We have our own sphere of influence, and we're challenging the U.S. and the West on their own terms. But now, when it comes to paying into this loss and damage fund, Beijing is like, nope, not us. We're a developing nation. Interesting. And I'm sure that um, all the contending blocs at COP27 were very grateful to Egyptian dictator Abdel Fattah el-Sisi for running a tight ship where the kind of Massive protest seen last year at COP26 in the UK, where an atmosphere of repressive tolerance prevails, were not possible. In fact, the Egypt summit was preceded by a wave of arrests of activists who were preemptively detained for even talking about protests at COP27 or sharing social media posts calling for such. 
Okay, the whole question of climate reparations is certainly vividly highlighted by the situation in Pakistan, now experiencing its worst flooding in living memory, an unprecedented disaster with some 2,000 killed since mid-June, 8 million people displaced, and almost half the country's farmland submerged, up to $40 billion in economic damage, and now resulting in a very grim health crisis with stagnating floodwaters fueling a rise in malaria, dengue fever, and diarrhea. And I feel the need to add that diarrhea is no laughing matter. It can be deadly if there is no clean water to rehydrate with. This is deadly fucking serious. And I'm appalled by how little media coverage it is getting in comparison to, say, people having problems getting tickets to see Taylor Swift so deeply out of whack. Okay, and other related and very eerie story from Tuvalu, which Counter Vortex adapted from an account on the new humanitarian website, imperiled Tuvalu to become the first digital nation. Tuvalu, the Pacific Island nation beset by both rising sea levels and extreme drought, used the COP27 climate summit to announce that it will move to the so-called metaverse. As our land submerges, we have no choice but to become the world's first digital nation. Simon Kofay, Tuvalu's foreign affairs minister, said in a pre-recorded address from Te Afualiku Islet, likely one of the first places in Tuvalu to sink beneath the waves in the coming years. Peace by peace, we'll preserve our country provide solace to our people, and remind our children and grandchildren what our home once was, Kofay said. Tuvalu has indeed taken early steps to explore its digital survival under worst-case scenarios, but the overarching message is clear as world leaders emerge from another summit with still gaping questions on climate action. Only concerted global effort can ensure that Tuvalu does not move permanently online and disappear from the physical plane, Kofay said. Recalls Jean Baudrillard's observation that everything is replaced by its own simulacrum, including, it seems, entire countries. And uh, have you been following the uprising that's been going on for several weeks now in eastern Bolivia? Well, of course you have. But just in case you haven't, I'll read the account that I wrote up yesterday, which emphasizes its connection to the climate question. Bolivia, soy boom fuels Santa Cruz unrest. Bolivia's eastern lowland city of Santa Cruz has been rocked by roadblocks and street clashes since an indefinite paro, or civil strike, was called by right-wing opposition groups October 22nd. With the open support of Santa Cruz departmental governor Fernando Camacho, 
strikers are demanding that a new census be held next year rather than in 2024, as is currently scheduled. The last census was in 2012, and the region's population has swelled with an influx of migrants since then. At issue is greater funding for the department and more slated congressional seats ahead of the 2025 elections. Jose Ernesto Serrate, president of the Civic Provincial Committees, is rejecting proposed assurances from the leftist government of President Luis Arce that post-census reapportioning could take place in time for the elections. Camacho has formally accepted this deal, but has stopped short of calling for an end to the paro. The opposition's militant wing, the Cruceñista Youth Movement, has repeatedly engaged in brawls both with the security forces and supporters of the ruling movement toward socialism, MAS. Cruceñista and MAS adherents have hurled dynamite at each other. Four have been killed in the unrest and scores wounded. Right-wing resentment against the central government is in large part driven by the designs of the region's land barons to expand the agricultural frontier into the expansive terrains declared off-limits as protected areas, reserves for indigenous peoples, or the titled holdings of Campesino communities. A boom in soy and beef for export is especially fueled by Chinese investment and market demand. Ironically, this trade is now on hold thanks to the paro. Days after the strike was declared last month, the central government imposed a suspension of all soy, beef, and sugar exports, citing the risk of internal shortages. Meanwhile, the regional forest fires that prompted the central government to declare a state of emergency in 2020 are once again devastating the eastern lowlands. Nearly 9,000 square kilometers, 3,475 square miles, burned across Bolivia by mid-September, according to government figures, mostly in the heavily forested east. Damage has been reported to Otuquis National Park and Tucavaca Valley Wildlife Reserve, both in the Chiquitania zone of Santa Cruz Department. Expansion of the agricultural frontier is a key driver of the annual cycles of wildfires. Kafko International, China's major soy importer, has just announced its commitment to making its supply chain free of deforestation and land conversion by 2030 in environmentally sensitive regions of South America, including the Amazon and Cerrado, both of which extend from Brazil into Bolivia's east. And uh, I'll just annotate that the um, Cerrado and Chiquitania zones in respectively Brazil and Bolivia are similar and uh, basically contiguous belts to the south of the Amazon, where the rainforest gives way to dry forest and savanna. Okay, some comments. Presumably, we all understand how expansion of the agricultural frontier results in forest fires. The usual pattern throughout the rainforest of South and Central America, as well as Indonesia and Malaysia 
and across the global rainforest belt is first you have so-called spontaneous clearing of the forest by peasant colonization with slash-and-burn techniques. The peasants generally pushed into the forest by the appropriation of their lands by agribusiness and ranching interests. But then those very interests follow them into the forest, appropriate their cleared lands by force or fraud, and push them deeper into the forest in a vicious cycle. And then in the dry season, which South America has just gone through over the past months, the fires can get out of control, and this is increasingly exacerbated due to aridification related to global warming. And the fires, of course, spew carbon into the atmosphere and contribute to global warming in another vicious cycle. And beef has long been a culprit here, but it's interesting that increasingly in the southern Amazon, the culprit is soy, about which there was much hippie utopianism back in the 70s when I first became a vegetarian. It was seen as this ultra-efficient protein and a cure-all for global hunger and the environmental dilemma. And you know, turning soy into tofu is pretty innocent, but much of that being exported to China is not being turned into tofu. It's being used for cattle feed to produce beef, along with the beef being directly imported from South America to China, which is now displacing the United States as a global destination for rainforest beef. And beef is an ultra-inefficient protein, not only in terms of land use and the destruction of forests, but the massive amounts of methane, which are emitted from both ends of each head of cattle. That is to say, both belches and farts. And again, this is a serious matter, so spare me the giggles. Methane is actually a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, although it does break down in the atmosphere faster. And when vast areas of rainforest, which in its natural state serves as a carbon sink, are converted into cattle lands, those belches and farts start to add up fast. And the role of China in the Bolivia situation is extremely ironic here, given that um, Beijing is a key backer of the current central government of Bolivia, referred to by Evo Morales, the former president and patriarch of the ruling party, the MAS, as an ideological ally, quote-unquote, against U.S. imperialism. And yet, the MAS government's worst enemies in the reactionary Santa Cruz elite are getting rich selling agro-exports to China. Another case study in the global divide-and-conquer scam that is the essence of the state system. And I guess I'm glad that Kafka International, a major Chinese state-owned enterprise, which effectively functions as a for-profit multinational corporation, is at least acknowledging the problem in line with Xi Jinping's rhetoric about building an ecological civilization. But I am utterly skeptical that these vicious cycles can be meaningfully unwound as long as the world economy is predicated on global trade and moving commodities like soy and beef around the planet. There needs to be a dramatic and radical decentralization with economies localized 
and striving for self-sufficiency to the degree possible, with land expropriated from the agro-export elites and returned to the peasants and indigenous peoples who know how to use it sustainably. And this needs to be done with a sense of transnational solidarity with all those striving for such decentralization around the world, viewing each other as allies against their respective ruling elites and oppressors, and resisting the lore of linking deglobalization to narrow nationalism and xenophobia, which is how it plays on the right, or to campism in the name of a multipolar world, which is how it plays on the left. A mere rhetorical difference, really, and either way, it is sure to backfire. And another trap to be avoided, which is still heard far too often from environmentalists, e.g. from Sir David Attenborough's group Population Matters, is Malthusianism, the analytical error of blaming the global crisis on sheer human numbers rather than our reigning economic and political system. Which brings us to another news story from the past week and a half. According to the people keeping track of this at the United Nations, the world population reached 8 billion on Tuesday, November 15th, to much media hype and no small degree of alarmism. But in fact, the rate of world population growth has actually been slowing for the past several years. And the human population is expected to stabilize over the next generation, even if the human race doesn't wipe out due to nuclear war, disease, climate disaster, or any of the other myriad-related threats we are facing. And in fact, the persistent Malthusian error is inherently racist, as those areas where the population is growing the fastest are in the global south, Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Latin America, while the industrialized and post-industrial countries are approaching or have reached zero population growth and are also the countries that use vastly more resources per capita and have far greater carbon footprints, not even close. And it isn't a coincidence that it is the rich countries that are approaching or have reached zero population growth. Contrary to the Malthusian fallacy, overpopulation, quote-unquote, itself a loaded word, does not cause poverty. On the contrary, poverty drives population growth in nearly all cases. And it is repugnant to speak of so-called overpopulation as responsible for hunger in the global South, when peasants who grow corn and beans for local consumption are being usurped of their lands by agro-export elites who produce beef to be shipped to some country on the other side of the world, whether in terms of longitude, as in China, or in terms of latitude, as in the United States. And interestingly, the movie Soylent Green produced in 1973 at the high noon of neo-Malthusianism, five years after Paul Ehrlich released his very popular and very dangerous book, The Population Bomb, was set in 2022. 
And obviously, the dystopia portrayed in that movie has not come to pass. We are facing plenty of other dystopias, God knows, but not that one. And indeed, one of the dystopias we're facing is that of fascistic misreadings of the roots of the impending global ecological collapse, which that book and that movie have contributed to. So another trap to avoid, the persistent fallacy of Malthusianism, as well as the related traps of nationalism, xenophobia, and campism, as we struggle to de-globalize the world economy and free the land from the propertied classes all over the planet. There, I just briefly summed up the critical struggle facing the human race for the next generations, if we're lucky enough to survive for the next generations. You're welcome! Now let's get busy. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I've been ranting about tonight is all blogged up, hyperlinked, and documented. Support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Just a buck or two a week will make a big difference. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.